One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. The government's net zero target is nothing if not ambitious. It aims to decarbonise the British economy, energy, manufacturing, transport and agriculture included, all in the space of just a few decades. But while there are a glut of exciting new low-carbon technologies and some encouraging signs that renewables are getting a lot cheaper there's still a very big question mark over how feasible the 2050 target is. In his new book, Not Zero, journalist Ross Clark suggests the government has bitten off far more than it can chew, with a policy agenda that threatens to make Brits a lot worse off with almost no benefit to the environment. I sat down with Ross to talk about just what net zero entails, how far the government is from its target, and if we aren't going to make the 2050 target, what he thinks we should be doing instead. Well, Ross, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Great to have you here. Your book, Not Zero, came out at the beginning of February, and it's a very detailed uh, assessment of a very important policy area that the government has committed to by 2050. Let's just start by going into the background of what Net Zero actually is, where it emerged from, because it's we hear about it so often, it's easy to forget that it just kind of came into being at the fag end of Theresa May's premiership, and we've been with it ever since. Yeah, but the the government um, was under obligation to reduce carbon emissions by 80% on 1990 levels by 2050 under the Climate Change Act 2008. But in 2019, this was suddenly sort of upgraded to a net zero commitment. Um, Very little debate in Parliament, no vote. Um, end of very end of Theresa May's um, premiership when you know the everyone's mind was on Brexit and so on, and um, you know pushed through without a vote. And you know, what I try to do in the book is to ask the questions which MPs should have asked before they nodded this thing through, but failed to do so. And when you start to do that, you realise you know what a difficult thing it is, what a hostage to fortune we, we've created. Yeah, was there a moment, a kind of epiphany, when you thought, right, this is something that urgently needs more investigation, or was it something you were preoccupied with already? Well, I, I was writing from it from from the very beginning, and um, I was interested in climate. You know, since before global warming was almost sort of um, you know became a popular subject. So I mean, I was very much onto the onto the story and had been you know following the various commitments and and you, you just realize sort of how how much there is to it it's not just a case of energy 
And um, it, you know, it's a case of sort of materials, plastic, steel, and cement, and so on, agriculture, and all these things together to to, to sort of decarbonize them by 2050. You're, you're sort of rejecting numerous established um, technologies and trying to replace them with something different. You know, it's a sort of unprecedented uh, thing to do in human history. Yeah, what come, that comes through clearly in the book, and you've divided it into quite short chapters, which is quite helpful. And the impression you get reading it is very much of a kind of seesaw, where every time you try to do something that takes carbon, out, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, something else gets in the way. So turbines are made of steel, which is an incredibly carbon-intensive industry, you know, and that kind of thing. I just want to briefly... Um, get back to the actual legally binding aspect of net zero, though. So we're already seeing the consequences of that in terms of the government being subject now to legal action from environmental campaigners. Yeah, I mean, every time that um, government tries to build any infrastructure, any time it comes up with a new policy, um, there are crowds of environmental, these of activists and um, lawfare, as you might call it, um, they, they chuck, um, you know, they challenge it in the courts through judicial reviews and so on. Well, you know, you want to build an extra runway at Heathrow. I mean, you're going to have to explain in court, um, well, how's that consistent with net zero by 2050, given that at present we have no um, affordable means of decarbonising air transport. And, um, you know, you come to the conclusion, well, the government just hasn't sought these things through. Um, it sort of put itself under this legal obligation without actually thinking the consequences of it. Yeah, I think it's worth saying at the top, because you mentioned this a couple of times in the book as well, that you're by no means what used to be called a kind of climate denier. Um, in the sense you say repeatedly, yes, the temperatures are going up and, you know, you don't disbelieve what has become known as the science, which is, I think, a slightly misleading term. But you're not, you're not you're someone who thinks that anthropogenic climate change is a myth or anything like that. No, not at all. I mean, the, there is clear data which shows the, the climate is warming by a tune of about 0.1 Celsius per decade. And, um, you know, the wires the climate does change naturally of course um the you know you, you you compare it with previous periods and with the uh, look at the rate of carbon emissions it's it's very likely almost you know extremely likely that the two things are connected i mean i don't question i don't question the desirability of reducing and eventually eliminating carbon emissions but it, it, it's the uh, it, it's the speed and the uh, at which we we've put this under ourselves and um the, the sort of lack of planning that goes with it I, I just find completely extraordinary yeah i mean do you have uh, what does the government estimate the cost of this it's in the sort of low trillions right by 2050 well the, the government's committee on climate change produced this sort of um figure in 2019 one trillion pounds of investment it would take um national grid uh, next following year came up with three trillion pound just to decarbonize the grid so it's tripled in the space <laughs> of a year okay and then in 2021 when the government produced its uh, net zero strategy the treasury was asked to come up with his own figure and refused to do so so we can't do it because there are too many unknowns here you cannot estimate the cost of something when you don't know how you're actually going to do it so officially the government does not have a figure does not know any idea of what it'll cost 
Yeah, I mean, we're still getting... There seems to be a kind of arms race of political pledges, though. For Like, just today, I think, in fact. We record this on a, a Thursday, so uh, this would be the 23rd of February. Um, Keir Starmer has today pledged to uh, have a fossil fuel-free electricity grid by 2030, which strikes me as a bit optimistic, given that in the book you say that renewables account for less than, what, just over 4% of current electricity, is that right? Um, no, that, that's not true. Um, wind and solar account for 4.2% of total right. energy needs in okay. Britain. They, they, they form a, a, a much larger proportion of the um, electricity grid, but sort of um, wind's about uh, sort of 20, 30% around that sort of level. Gas is about 40%. But the thing is, we, we balance that. We, we, we need the gas to balance the wind and solar because being um, intermittent forms of energy, um, you know, when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, we have to turn up the gas. What happens after 2035 when the government wants to uh, um, eliminate gas from the grid or 2030 as Keir Starmer wants to do? Um, I have absolutely no idea. They haven't answered it. Mm. Um, there are feasible ways. I mean, you could in, invest massively in electricity storage, and it really would have to be massively. Um, you could build an international grid, and um, uh, you know the uh, so it's always blowing on. It's always shining in in some part of the world. Share electricity internationally, globally, like that. That would be absolutely massively expensive. It's not going to happen by twenty thirty to have a, and there are huge losses along the way. Um, you know, if you're transporting electrical energy along long distance, you lose a lot of the energy along the way. Um, so, there, you know, potential solutions you could do, that we, we just don't have an affordable way of balancing um, intermittent wind and solar energy at the moment. And I, I cannot see how we get it there by 2035, let alone 2030. Let's just talk about storage. I mean, what kinds of technology do we have in mind there? We know battery is the very obvious one, but yeah, another one you mentioned that's quite interesting was hydrogen. Um, which do you think are the most viable? Notwithstanding that you don't think it can be done in that short time frame, what do you think the future of energy storage looks like in the UK? Yeah, I, I, th I mean, the cheapest way of storing energy at the moment is what we were doing between the 1960s and the 1980s. Um, we built a lot of what are called pumped storage um, reservoirs, which are, you know, two reservoirs, one at high level, one at low level. You pump the water uphill when the, um, there's plenty of surplus energy and let it roll downhill um, when you need the energy. And they, they were done to sort of work in tandem with nuclear power stations. But, you know, since the 1980s, we haven't added any more to the system. Um, so we, we've got less than an hour's worth of electricity storage um you know, less than an hour of average UK usage equivalent storage at the moment. And what could we do in future? We could battery storage. I mean, it's it's extremely expensive. If you take um, and I'm going by the figures produced on Pacific National Laboratories, which look at the costs all around the globe and look at the what are called the levelized cost of you know that's the lifetime uh, cost of the average cost over a lifetime of an asset. Um, to generate um, electricity from wind and or solar at around about 
um, $50 per megawatt hour. Um, to store that in battery form, you're looking at $300 per megawatt hour. You know, that's six times as much. And you've got to pay it on top of the generating costs. Um, if you, um, hydrogen, I think, is possibly the more likely solution in the longer run. But again, you know, it's similar costs. You know, six times as much as generating the electricity in the first place. And, um, you, you know, to... to to, to generate hydrogen, there's, there's already problems um, scaling up that technology. Um, you know, the, the electrolysis of water, you produce hydrogen from water um, and then you burn it and you can, um, you know, regenerate electricity. There's losses, you know, of course, you know, you're the round trip, as it were, generating the hydrogen, then burning it to generate energy again. You, you're only getting about 70% of what you put in. So, you know, you, there's another loss there to consider. But, um, you know, hydrogen could be a practical solution, but it's just long, long way away at the moment. That's something that comes through throughout your argument is that the tech, it's not that the tech isn't there. You list, I mean, it's astonishing, actually, the number of different potentially exciting technologies that are out there, but almost none of them have been have been scaled yet i mean are there any that have been scaled or that you think are commercially viable that you think yes well you know this pump, pump storage reservoirs that they're proven you know we've been using them for 40 years um they they work but of course they require a particular form of topography you've got to have uh, you know mountainous places in order to uh uh, create the two reservoirs and um i think there's one more in the pipeline up in scotland um, off lot locky, but um, investors have not shown much interest in investing in it because the you know it's very expensive to do the the costs of um, recouping your investment are, are too long to um, tempt um, commercial investment at, at the current time. Um, there's another possible solution is compressed air. That's the uh, one of the cheapest solutions potentially is where you you know you pump air into an underground cavern. Um, excess energy and then when you need the energy you you release the air back through turbines and so on that at the present time that looks like could be the cheapest solution but again you need a very particular kind of geology to do it you know you need a cavern which you can pump air into and it's not going to um uh, you know leak out and um the places where you can do that are, are very um very small and one thing, we talk a lot about reducing the, the output, if you like, of the emissions of um, carbon dioxide by flying less, driving less, using electric cars, whatever it might be. But do you think we focus much less than we ought to on the net part of it? So the taking carbon out of, of the atmosphere. Um, for example, you talk about the potential for countries such as Russia to plant more trees and things like that. Is that a realistic response to climate change, you think? Well, Certainly not for a country that's small as Britain. Mm -hmm. I mean. Well, planting trees seems to be a big part of the government's plan at the moment for the net bit. But it, I mean, it's a con, really, because, um, you know, you, you plant a tree, it sucks carbon out of the atmosphere, but then eventually it dies and rots away and then re-releases the carbon. I mean, to 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 use it to sort of as a permanent removal of carbon from the atmosphere, what you have to do is grow the tree and then 
preserve the tree for eternity in some anaerobic conditions where it's not going to rot. Maybe just, um, I suppose you could sort of tow a load of wood out into the mid-Atlantic and just drop it down into the middle of the ocean and then it was, might sort of, um, uh, if you're lucky, um, you know, store the carbon for it ever after. But, um, you know, it, it, it takes, you know, 100 years for a tree to uh, um, reach maturity or certainly several decades I mean, you know, maybe the fast-growing conifers, you do about 30 years, but even that takes us beyond the 2050 target. So, you know, you, you cannot use planting trees to um, achieve net zero by, by 2050. You've got to look at things like carbon capture, um, where you're, you know, sucking carbon out the atmosphere and turning it into some inert form. And there are things you can turn it into what's called biochar, um, which is basically inert form of carbon you then spread on the land or you can possibly create building materials. Um, but, you know, again, it's quite an expensive thing to do. And carbon capture and storage, it, it's, it, it's quite hard to, you know, the economics don't really favour it when you're attaching it to um, existing coal and gas plants it's very expensive to do and it reduces the energy it consumes a lot of the energy uh, you know of the plant itself but um the, the alternative is to do direct air capture where you're um you know capturing just carbon from the air as it is say in this room and but that again is you know that puts the costs up. How far does more. how does that work then? How's that done? Well, well, you you sort of solvents can absorb the carbon dioxide from the 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 air, remove it from the air, uh, and turn it into some solid form. But um, um, you know, there's another. This is possible solution for aviation. We can um capture carbon dioxide from directly from the air. We can put it together with the hydrogen obtained from electrolysis of water and we can create synthetic fuels um, which we could then burn to keep passenger jets flying for example but you know it all comes down to cost again and it's very unappealing the um, economics of it at the moment yeah i mean something that comes across through each all the kind of all the sections of of your book is like I, I said earlier that it's a kind of like a seesaw, but, you know, as an econo uh, an economist would call it just trade-offs. And one of these is in, for example, growing your fuel, so biofuels, for example, and in the tree planting, actually. And one of the things you're concerned about is that we will reduce um, our food security. I mean, how big an issue do you think this is? Well, I think it's a very big issue. I mean, this week we've seen some empty supermarket shelves because of shortage of vegetables from coming in from Spain and Morocco due to bad weather down there. Um, food security is a very important issue for the country. I mean, finally, the governments have cottoned on to the idea that energy security is is um, important, but then also food security we haven't thought about so much. And, um, you know, in the past 40 years, the uh, percentage of, you know, our self-sufficiency in food has dropped from around sort of 85% to under 60%. Um, that's an issue we've got to address at some point, food security. But, of course, it, it's in tension with um, energy security. I mean, if you're going to cover fields with... Um, productive land with solar panels is going on where I live up in Cambridgeshire yeah. and Suffolk. Um, 
you know, it's, you're taking land out of production. And um, is it not the case that you can still farm underneath the panels? You can have a few sheep grazing. You can't grow turnips and carrots and wheat and that sort of thing. Because, uh, and you know, you get a little bit of grass under there, but you're not going to get the same grass you would as the solar panel. If it wasn't the solar panels, weren't they? Because of course they're absorbing a lot of the solar energy coming in. And one one quick way of. Uh that you mentioned, and you actually wrote a piece on CapEx about this recently, is that a very easy way for the government to hit its net zero targets is simply to offshore our emissions. So I forget the technical term, it's uh, territorial emissions, yeah, right? Yeah. It's the way that we is the way that we measure net zero. So at the moment, all we're doing really is is measuring emissions that are literally in the UK, but Really, that's creating a kind of false impression, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, what we're not counting is the emissions embedded in um, products coming in from other elsewhere in the world, either food or you know, industrial products, manufactured goods. Um, you know, if you make them in China, um, the Chinese factory uses energy. It's probably burning coal. So it's a lot dirtier than if you're making the thing in Britain. If you're growing food in... South America, again, you know, there are certain emissions um, uh, involved in that. And we're not counting those in the UK territorial emissions. And so what that's done is given this, the government, this is a very perverse incentive to offshore our industry, offshore our food production, so it can offshore the carbon emissions with it. And, um, you know, we, we see this happening with... Um, uh, you know the the steel plants closing and um, agriculture going abroad and, and government doesn't it seems to sort of almost celebrate it as a triumph when the uh, when the carbon emissions are offshored. Yeah, you mentioned China there, and one of the subtitles of the book is that net zero will help China. Can you just unpack that a bit? Because just to pay devil's advocate for a bit, does it really matter to China what a country the size of Britain does in terms of net zero? Well, Britain's commitment to net zero, of course, has um, created huge demand for wind turbines, solar panels, electric cars, and so on. And, you know, who's benefiting from this at the moment? It's China. This is where, where are the fastest growing sort of um, automotive industry? And you just walk around the streets of London now, you see these cheap Chinese, well, relatively cheap Chinese electric cars just sort of taking over from the Toyota Priuses now. Um, you know, a lot of the solar panels and wind turbine components all made in China. And that's where the sort of green jobs are be being created. It's not so much in Britain. There's a few green jobs in Britain, but most of them being created in China, South Asia and so on, because the energy costs are so much lower. Um, and you look at BASF, German industrial giant. What's it doing? It says it's not going to expand in Europe anymore. It's going to build a ten billion pound plant in China because the energy costs are cheaper. We're piling costs on ourselves, energy costs on ourselves to net zero commitment, and that is just creates a sort of huge um, incentive to 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 move um, manufacturing over to Asia. It's not just Britain either, is it? I mean, we've seen particularly under Angela Merkel some extremely strange energy policies in Germany. I think France has started shutting nuclear power plants as well, which was very surprising because it was basically the, the kind of poster child of nuclear power, and now it seems to have yeah. gone in the other direction. It seems as though it's a, 
a Western, maybe a Western European, maybe disease is the wrong word, but phenomenon. Yeah. That we're trying to do this kind of on a wing and a prayer. To... Yeah, well, when this we put this net zero commitment on ourselves, a legally binding commitment, um, it was with the idea that it would somehow inspire all the world's other countries to follow suit and we, they'd all go and say, oh, well, we, we must commit ourselves to net zero as well. Um, and you look at China, well, you know, on the face of it, it has a net zero target by 2060. But it's not a legally binding one. It's just an aspiration of the government. And the government has made absolutely clear that it will not put economic growth at risk as a result of its net zero commitment. Economic growth comes first. It'll invest in solar panels, wind turbines, but it's also the world's biggest investor in new coal plant because it wants energy from all sources. Now, if you tot up the uh, countries which have put themselves under a legally binding um, commitment to net zero, they count for about 10% of global emissions. The real big emitters, China, third of global emissions, no legal commitment. US, the next largest emitter, has it placed itself under a legally binding net zero target? No. What Biden's done is um, pass his Inflation Reduction Act, which just hands out subsidies to uh, people, say, buying electric cars, as long as they're made in in America. It's, it's a huge um, protectionist sort of device disguised under the, uh, you know, under the guise of climate. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. I mean, even with those cheaply made Chinese electric cars that you mentioned, uh, is, is, is the cost of... Uh, that transition anywhere near getting to be affordable for normal motorists? Because one of the things you mention is you compare the the running costs and the tax treatment of different kinds of, of motoring. It just strikes me reading it that we have this ambition to basically phase out petrol cars in the, and diesel cars in, in the UK, but no one's going to be able to afford to drive in sort of 10 or 15 years' time. Yeah, well, uh, at the moment... 
the purchase price of an electric car is about half as much again as an equivalent right. petrol one. Um, as for running costs, um, well, there was a period when um, you could say it was cheaper to run an electric vehicle than um, buy a, than run a petrol one, but that's not true at the moment because electric electricity prices are sky high and petrol diesel prices have come down. So actually, it costs um, more to uh, run an electric car at the moment. But um, in many, depending on how you charge it, of course. But but you know, those comparisons that we used to get on to oh, it's cheaper to run an electric car, they're all a bit phony because they ignore the fact that sixty percent of the cost of a litre of petrol is tax, and if you charge your car electric car at home, you're only paying five percent VAT. So. You know, if you want to look at the genuine costs, you've got to sort of, you know, equalise the tax treatment. You've got to look at it X tax. And if you do that, you know, it's a lot more expensive to run an electric car than it is to run a petrol and diesel one. Of course, you know, might, electric car owners might feel smug at the moment, but there's no way the government's going to let its £28 billion from... Um, fuel duty just wither away as we go to electric cars. It's going to come up with road pricing or some other way of taxing vehicles. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we've we've always been quite keen on road pricing uh, on capex as a kind of I don't know rational way of regulating roads with prices and and so on. But yeah, it does strike me. One of the things that's striking in the book is that your the figures on charging points it's something i think the top figure is 480,000 is what we need and we've only got mm. what 25,000 or something yeah it's slightly different figures on this but if you look at the sort of zap zap map which gives you a map of all the electric charging points i bet it, i mean i tried to plot a journey up to scotland which i do quite a lot um and in, you know, if I had a Nissan Leaf, one of the best-selling electric cars, and I said, "Well, how long would it take me to get there?" And at the moment, it takes me seven and a half hours door to door. I stop, and it takes me eleven hours. But um, if I was doing it on electric, with a Nissan Leaf fully loaded with passengers and luggage, I calculate it would take me. I'd have to stop seven times to um, recharge the car. And each time it would be uh, half an hour to an hour. But that assumes that the charger was, it was absolutely in the right place and was working. And, and in a lot of those seven stops, you know, there was only one charger. And if it was out of action or there was someone else using it, you know, it would just, it's just impractical to make those really long journeys by electric cars at the moment. You hear such misery stories of people. <laughs> yeah, to do no, it. it's, and you hear this all the time, especially if anyone's trying to go around rural UK. That does strike me as one of the more sort of soluble issues that you raise. But I just wonder how quickly you think that we might run into the sorts of affordability problems we're discussing and whether or not politicians will then react. If in two or three years people are saying, I can't afford to change my boiler or change my car or whatever it might be. I mean, we've already seen just this week that there's been a report on the green heating scheme saying it's been a failure um, because hardly anyone's taken it up. I mean, are we already seeing the kind of contradictions of net zero coming to fruition? Well, we are beginning to see beginning to realize that you know every you have so many different ways it adds costs and um whether you're installing a 
heat pump for your house, which, you know, basically costs around £10,000 rather than £1,000 for a gas boiler, um, or you're buying an electric car, you know, there's just layers and layers of costs. And it really is layers. I mean, we've talked about price for electric cars a minute ago, but of course, we're just talking about the car producing, the cost of producing a car as it is. But, you know, you get everyone driving electric cars, that doesn't get you to net zero because there's the um, emissions involved in the manufacture of the car, making the steel, making the plastics, and also making the roads. You know, you know you're having a car if you can go anywhere to drive on. You've got to have concrete and steel and tarmac to make the roads. And where does tarmac come from? Where does bitumen come from? Out of oil wells. And you know, you've got another huge issue there which hasn't even been touched by by the government. But, you know, if you're going to sort of start adding up the costs of actually manufacturing a net zero car well that's many layers of, of of expense on top of what we were talking about a minute ago what do you think when a lot of people would reply to that and say well that's how that's the state of the technology now but we've seen in so many fields of kind of human endeavor that the more money and focus and you know attention private and public sector goes into it the costs will come down and we've seen that with wind farms and solar panels the cost has dropped dramatically does that in some way give you any optimism or are you a bit still skeptical well about- sometimes costs come down sometimes costs things that technology surprise us at the speed at which the the um the, the cost comes down i'm talking about wind turbines and batteries and so on um, we've been living in quite a false paradise over, well, between sort of 2011 and um, 2021 because it was an era of rapidly falling commodity prices. Mm. Um, so all the rare metals going into the batteries, the steel going into the wind farms and so on, they were all coming down in price. I mean, partly because the technology was improving, we were doing it better, but also partly because the price of the ingredient commodities were coming down. That's now reversed. And, you know, last couple of years, we've seen steep rises in commodity prices. And um, I was reading somewhere that a manufacturer of wind turbines was saying it's actually, you know, costs now 40% more to manufacture than it did a couple of years ago. So, well, that's the main cost of wind energy. So, you know, a little further down the road, we're going to realise that that, you know, that reduction in cost has come to an end and, and the costs of wind energy are slightly rebounding now. But, you know, you, you cannot count on um, technologies always coming down in price just because you would like them to. And if we were having this discussion sort of 70 years ago, we'd be talking about nuclear fusion and how it was going to be the answer to everything. And there's an infamous quote in the book from the chairman of the U.S., Nuclear Association in 1954, who said, it's not too much to expect that our children will benefit from electricity that's too cheap to meter. Well, that didn't quite work out that way. Um, you know, nuclear fusion is still, a, it's still you know, it could still be the solution to our problems, but it's still decades into the future. And, um, you know, you, you just cannot sort of will technologies to develop at the speed you'd like them to and the cost of descenders you'd like them just because you would find it convenient just because you're chucking money at it you know think of the money that's been chucked into nuclear fusion over the years and um, still hasn't 
um, delivered the goods. Uh, yeah, it all seems to be the perennial nearly technology. Um, I was struck by your sort of enthusiasm for tidal energy, though. You said that, for the UK at least, for obvious reasons, this could be a good way of generating power. But isn't that also kind of fearfully expensive, which is why they abandoned Swansea Bay Yes, it is. Well, there, um, even before Swansea Bay, there was the um, proposal for a seven barrage, and that was dropped. Um, uh, well, partly because of the uh, um, ecological reasons, doing away with the sort of mud flats in the seven, but also finally dumped because of the cost. It was coming out about three hundred pound per megawatt hour. Um, you know, which would be sort of three times as much as Hinkley C power station at the time. However. Um, the thing with tidal barrages, of course, is their dual purpose. And, you know, we have rising sea levels. We're going to have to defend our estuaries. We've got a lot of low-lying cities. We're sitting in one now, London, but, you know, Cardiff, Bristol, Newcastle, Hull and so on, all very low-lying cities. We're, we're going to have to defend our estuaries. So, well, if you're going to have to build, beef up um, sea defences in this way, well, why not build barrages now? and use them as hydroelectric power um, as well. Yeah, that's a, another bit you get onto towards the end of the book, is about how little we're doing in terms of prevention. Partly, I think, as you allude to in the book, it's there's a kind of ideological distaste for the idea that uh, we should simply adapt rather than stop, as you say, King Canute-like, trying to stop climate change in, entirely. Um, how much, I mean, we only spend about a billion pounds a year on flood defences in this country, as far as I'm aware, which seems to me to be a very, very, very tiny amount, given what the government spends on on other things and the damage it causes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's a little bit more than that now. But I mean, certainly for years and years, we were spending sort of three million on energy subsidies, uh, uh, sorry, three billion on energy subsidies and only less than a billion on um, servicing and existing flood defences and building new flood defences. And, um, you know, you, you look about the sort of Norfolk coast and you look at sort of place around the Thames estuary and you so, uh, the, you know, the, the language all seems to be from the sort of environment agency and sort of managed retreat. Um, we can't do anything about it. We've just got to abandon the, the land and so on. And I mean, you look particularly the North Norfolk coast, the northeast Norfolk coast, very, very prone to erosion, a lot of very soft clay cliffs. Now you can stop that erosion if you want to. They've always eroded those cliffs, and you know, the villages that exist in medieval times are now two miles out to sea and so on. Um, but we choose not to. And why do we choose not to? Because, as you say, it's a sort of ideology, almost you don't fiddle with nature and um, so on. But it got to the point where um, the Bacton gas terminal, I mean, this is one of the big ter- terminals receiving gas. So this is North near sea. Haysborough in it, yes, Suff- it's Suffolk? Suffolk? Yeah. Um, no, it's Norfolk. Norfolk, sorry. Yeah. Between Mundersley and Haysborough in, um, in Norfolk. And it got to the stage where... Um, this gas term, parts of it were only sort of 50 yards from the edge of the cliff. They had to do something. Um, so what they're doing, they've borrowed an idea from the Dutch, which is you um, you suck liquid sand, a mixture of sand and seawater from sort of a couple of miles out to sea, and you pump it onto the beach. 
And of course, obviously it costs money, but it's such a very effective way of rebuilding the beach, um, defending against um, cliff erosion. They've, they've done it extensively in the Netherlands, as they have to, because, you know, a quarter of the Netherlands is below sea level. Um, we could do it far more in Britain, but again, we choose not to. I think eventually we probably will do, but it, it's just, it's sort of depressing the way it, you know, we have a government which preaches sort of climatic Armageddon all the time, and then it won't do a simple um, measure which would have actually defend the, the, the coast. Yeah, that's that brings me to a very, we'll just finish off with a couple of quite kind of epistemic questions, if you like, but I mean, why do you think that kind of rhetoric is so readily accepted? We talk about this eschatological version of climate change where it's always going to end in, you know, the apocalypse. It can't just be that things get worse or that things change. It's always, well, as the campaign group, you know, implies, extinction rebellion. It's it's very strange to me that people are so, seem to almost enthusiastic about it like <laughs> yeah it's it's almost a quasi religious thing where you're sort of um predicting doom all the time and um things can only get worse well, we are millennials we, so we, this yes, is well, yes. exactly millennialism and we we've sort of um you know it, it's sort of a morality tale that we've sort of fouled our own nest and so on and um uh, it goes back quite a way. The, the whole, so, you know, the whole language of conservation. I mean, I'm not against conservation. I'm in favour of nature conservation, as, as we all are. But you listen to people on the radio say, and just everything's always just getting worse. You know, if there's creatures which are declining in their um, uh, you know their their abundance. Well, that's a terrible problem and terribly sad. It's tragic. It's all because we've done it. But then, if you get a sort of species which is increasing, like deer in the English countryside, well, that's a problem too, and we've caused it. And, it's, and I think you know you you sort of some people seem to have this idea that you know were it not for humans that the world would sort of be in this lovely stage of um, ecological balance and forever after. And I mean, no stage of the development of um, natural history has the world ever been like that. It's always been full of competing animals, plants and changing climate. And one moment, one thing's getting on top, the next moment, the next thing's getting on top. But it, it seems to have been sort of served up into this sort of religious sort of... Uh, um, thing which um you know quite clearly there are a lot of young people who are seriously traumatized by the idea that yeah. we're making the world unlivable and i mean it's not therefore i mean they've been sort of educated in this way and you listen to some of the stuff the un puts out about sort of unlivable world and so on we actually go and read the um you know the report behind it the ipcc report and you read it in detail and, you know, it sort of says, accounts of changes in the climate. Some things are getting worse in some ways. Some things are getting better. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very mixed bag of climatic changes. It does not support the idea that, you know, humans are driving themselves to extinction. It simply doesn't. Yeah, I think quasi-religious was an interesting way of putting it. And in that same context, if you are one of the faithful, you show your adherence by making more dramatic claims 
There's something you see on social media about on about all sorts of different topics is you show your membership of the tribe by having the strongest views mm-hmm. imaginable. I just wonder what you think, um, A, what are the difficulties and B, what are the solutions for someone like you who is trying to put forward an alternative to what is basically the kind of consensus view with how do you get a hearing for saying you know calm down a bit well it's very difficult to get a hearing in some places like bbc for example they were you know i was going to be on the today program a few weeks ago and um all ready to go and then um suddenly no change of editorial direction i was disinvited from the program it tells you a lot um you know just for writing a book called not zero again the case against having this um target i get called a denier and i'm always going to be called a denier because that's what some people will do but you know i think i you know as I was, we were talking about i accept that the world is warming and it's it is in all our interests that we move towards clean energy cutting carbon emissions maybe eliminating them eventually but you know something we should be doing is Investing in te- the, the technologies, the development of technologies, yeah, of course we should do doing that. I mean, you know, look at what America's doing, pumping all the money into technological development without setting a net zero target. I mean, that's maybe a bit more of a model for what we should be doing rather than tying ourselves down by this target, just have something more positive to invest in yeah. technological development. So my final question is, do you think given the cost pressures and so on and the technical difficulties that you enumerate in the book, do you think net zero will survive as a legally binding target until, you know, in the decades to come? Well, I think that sort of one of three things will happen, really. I think that either there will be lots of miracle breakthroughs in multiple technologies and we all we all achieve net zero and everybody's happy. Um, I think that's um, possible, but highly unlikely. Um, second, I think the government will have to relax this target at some point and turn it into an ambition rather than a legally binding target. But the third outcome is the one that I really fear, is which the government under political pressure sticks to this target and tries to fudge it. And as we said, tries to fudge it by offshoring all our industry and food production and carbon emissions with it, um, by stopping us doing things, um, stopping us driving and um, fudging the figures, trying to plant trees and cover the country with trees and try and claim that's actually um, uh, remove carbon from the air permanently, which it hasn't. Um, you know, all those sort of things. I think we just end up with a mess. We compromise our industry. We make ourselves poorer. And to what end? Where if you know the biggest world's biggest emitters, China, US, and so on, haven't tied themselves down with this legally net binding, <laughs> legally binding net zero target? Well, Ross, I do hope for all our sakes it's not the third of the options that you've just outlined because it is a bit um, dispiriting. But it's a bracing and well argued book with lots of detail in there. I would recommend you read it, even if you don't necessarily agree with. Ross's thesis instinctively. It's always good to, you know, read dissenting opinions. Um, Ross, thanks very much indeed for for joining us. And if you do want to buy Not Zero, it's out now and all available, all good bookshops. 
And of course, you can always get the ebook if you want to reduce the amount of trees that cut, cut down in the process. Um, as always, please do leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or just by good old fashioned word of mouth. Do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Thank you.